The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Preventing all data breaches is impossible. And there are trade-offs as you start adopting different measures to promote security. Security is really about risk management, and there needs to be some risk. If you truly want to get rid of all risk, then don't use the internet. Don't use computers. But we need to do these things. We need to have access to data. We need to be able to use data easily and quickly. And when you have these things, they come into conflict with what could be ideal for security. I'm Stephanie Pell, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 2nd, 2022. For the past two decades, there has been an epidemic of data breaches, from Target to Home Depot to Equifax to Uber, just to name a handful. In their new book, Breached, Dan Solov, the John Marshall Harlan Research Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School, and Woody Hartzog, professor of law and computer science at Northeastern University, tell us why current data security law fails and how we can improve it. I talked with Dan and Woody about a number of issues they raise in their book, including how current data security law overemphasizes the conduct of breached entities and fails to distribute responsibility among a range of actors in the data ecosystem that contribute to the data breach problem. We also talked about their ideas for more proactive data security laws that work to reduce the harm caused by data breaches once they occur, encourage greater integration of privacy and security principles, and promote data security rules and practices designed with humans in mind. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 2nd. Dan Solov and Woody Hartzog on their new book, Breached. Woody. In the early part of your book, you and Dan take a trip down memory lane. It wasn't a nice trip. Those memories essentially constitute a parade of data breach horror stories we've seen over the past two decades. While we don't have time to talk about all of them, you introduce them for a purpose. Among other things, they illustrate that the war against data security is being lost, as you say, one battle at a time. So before we talk about why that is so and what you and Dan propose doing about it, can you remind our audience about some of those breaches? Give us a little of that history. Sure. So one of the first data breaches that really entered into the American consciousness that we talk about in the book is the choice point data breach, which came out 
uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, it was a shock to people that, in fact, all of this information was even being stored. And then when it came to light that it was compromised, people started to be shocked about it. And they said, oh, what kind of information is being collected here? And it was, uh, if I remember correctly, they had a few hundred thousand records. And that has now been eclipsed, of course, uh, that is child's play compared to the size of the breaches that we have now. And for the very first time, people began to talk about breaches using the language of breached, which is actually a relatively new term that came around in the late 1990s and early 2000s as a way to describe the unauthorized access and collection of, of personal information. And what happened is that over the next couple of years, and really over the next 10 to 15 years, we started seeing a steady increase in the number of breaches every single year. So much so that in the 2010s, journalists started calling every year when they did the year-end summaries, the year of the breach, right? So 2011 was the year of the data breach. And then it turns out that, nope, that was a mistake. 2012 is actually the year of the data breach. And so then the target data breach becomes... Uh, public knowledge. And we say, oh, this was one of the largest data breaches ever. This is actually the year of the data breach. And then we have the Anthem data breach. And then we have the Ashley Madison data breach. And uh, journalists say, oh, no, well, this is actually the year of the data breach. And then information comes to light that Yahoo had a, a, a catastrophic data breach. And the journalists said, no, this is the data breach. And it all forces us to um, in the book, we talk about how the laws that we have clearly aren't working great because every year is worse than the year before. And there's no end in sight that it just that line just only goes up in terms of the number of records breached. So the approach that we have now simply isn't working well for us. Uh, and in the book, we walk the reader through a timeline of how things got worse over time. Personally, uh, I think that there are a couple of data breaches that are really a good illustration of a lot of the problems that lie with our law's approach to data breaches. The one that we start the book off with is the target data breach, which shows that even a company that is incredibly large, that has a massive amount of resources, uh, can still be felled by a data breach because the systems of data are so complex and because there were a lot of factors that uh, were not taken into account, for example, the ways that humans react to things like warnings about possible intrusions, um, as well as uh, all of the different actors that are involved that you have to get a, a sense of control over if you want to mitigate the risk of a breach. And so in the book, we build out what a lot of these breaches look like and how things keep getting worse and worse. So, Dan, given the very concerning picture that you and Woody have painted in the early part of the book, uh, whereas Woody just said almost every year can arguably be named the year of the data breach, your book focuses then on how the law should do a better job of promoting data security throughout the data ecosystem. So, first of all, what do you mean by or how do you define data security and how does it overlap with cybersecurity, privacy and cybersecurity and privacy regulation? 
Well, there's definitely a a lot of confusion because there's a lot of different terms and also there's a lot of silos when it comes to privacy, security, and cybersecurity. Uh, so the way we understand the, the world, uh, the way we define these terms, is that cybersecurity is a very broad umbrella that covers everything security, all types of data, whether it be critical infrastructure data, I intellectual property data, or personal data. Our focus in the book is on personal data. And so um, we use the term data privacy, uh, which has often been used for the personal data side of things when it comes to security. So um, we don't really talk about some of the cybersecurity issues that go beyond personal data to critical infrastructure and so on. Then when it comes to the relationship between privacy and security, this is a, a particularly complicated one. We see privacy and security as distinct, yet also quite intertwined, quite interrelated, and they really go hand in hand. And unfortunately, in both law and practice, and a lot of times in discourse, they've been separated, they've been siloed. But I think that they really do go uh, together. We see data security as a component of privacy. Uh, privacy is a kind of a broader concept that captures all types of data protection, whether it be you know, security is one part, but there's also other things such as you know controlling use, data minimization, and so on. So we see privacy as a kind of very broad tent that would involve a, a litany of types of of things that we would want to do for data, good data hygiene, good data practices, of which security is a very important thing for that. And a lot of the things that are done to protect privacy are also great for security as well. It's uh, really hard, if not impossible, to have good data security without good privacy. Uh, And in the book, we talk about how you know, if you really do a great job to secure the back door and you can put locks on it and fortify it uh, so that no one can break in, but then you leave the front door open for anyone to just walk right in, you really don't have good security. And privacy is very much a front door issue. Going back to the choice point breach that uh, Woody talked about earlier, um, that is a front door breach. That involved uh, a group of hackers that posed as customers to ChoicePoint, and ChoicePoint sold them the data. And so that's a, a privacy issue. That is about uh, vetting the customers that you have, policies about how readily you share personal data, the very you know, business models and uh, business practices that lead to this unauthorized use of the information. And so this is very much a front door breach that I think really shows how privacy and security are interrelated. So I think there's also a really interesting sort of puzzle for data privacy that we try to tackle in the book, which has to do with the historical development of of data security, particularly 
as a subfield that straddles both cybersecurity and privacy fields. And it has to do with the way in which it arose in the first place. So uh, when you think about data security, a lot of people point the origin of data security laws back to the protection and safeguards aspect of the fair information practices, which was the set of principles uh, that arose in the 1970s in response to concerns about uh, databases and, and the storage of personal data. And where we really saw data security almost sort of build up as its own subfield is with the choice point breach and uh, with California's development of breach notification laws, um, which at the time sort of built into the dominant narrative within privacy law at the time, which was notice and choice. The idea that people should be aware of how their personal information is collected and used and when it is jeopardized. And, and so it builds off that sort of narrative, yet stays siloed, and it doesn't collect the rest of the wisdom of privacy law, which is what we try to unpack a little bit in the book, which, as Dan says, builds on things like data minimization and purpose limitations and a lot of other sort of restrictions that recognize that good privacy is good data security. And instead, data security sort of kind of remains siloed away. But by remaining siloed within sort of the data protection frameworks, it also lacks the benefit of a lot of other areas of cybersecurity law, which does, in fact, have a little bit more of a systemic and, and holistic approach as well. And so in a way, data security sort of remains mired as betwixt and between and, and lacking some of the best aspects of both cybersecurity and privacy law. Dan, in the earlier part of the book, you and Woody identify essentially three types of rules, regulations, or policies that could be put or classified in the data security bucket. Breach notification laws, security safeguard laws, and private litigation. You all find problems or weaknesses with each of these categories in terms of how they protect and promote data security. I wanna briefly talk a bit about each of them and their respective shortcomings. Um, Dan, could you start off with breach notification laws. They're quite popular, but do they work well and how do they fall short? Well, I think they're both good and bad. So I'll start with the good. I think one of the, the really good things about breach notification is that it shed a lot of light and transparency on data breach. So um, before the California came out with the first breach notification law, we didn't hear much about data breaches, but they were going on. Uh, they were just kept quiet because no one had to report them or be accountable for them. Uh, when California's law first got used, which was in the choice point breach back in 2005, this really started the wave of reporting of data breaches that we've heard about. And that sort of also sparked uh, the states to start passing various breach notification laws. And now all 50 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico have breach notification laws, and now they're spreading worldwide. And this is remarkable how quickly they've spread. The, because of this, uh, we know a lot more about breaches uh, because they're reported. Uh, so the, the light has shined on breaches and we really see the picture. And it's a scary picture. But 
that's really the extent to which uh, breach notification is helpful. It ends up being incredibly costly, and I'm not sure we're really getting as strong of a return on investment as as we should. The breach notification periods keep shrinking. Uh, it seems that everyone wants to you know look tougher on breaches, so they will shorten the period to report. Uh, but really short reporting periods don't necessarily help. A lot is known about a breach in the early days. Uh, the facts aren't really figured out. Uh, and so you're getting reporting that is often completely inaccurate. The full numbers aren't known. The you know, causes of the breach aren't known. So little is actually known. Uh, so I'm not sure how that helps anyone to get you know, this, this super early reporting. I also think that, you know, there's just so much notification and, and, and it's so expensive, but it's not really helping people protect themselves that much. Uh, the notifications typically will offer free credit monitoring to people, uh, but a lot of times that, that that really, the vast majority of people don't really use the free credit monitoring. And even if they did, the free credit monitor credit monitoring is not a, it's not a vaccine against a breach. It's just a diagnosis of a, it just is an indication of a symptom of a breach. Uh, so you're not protected by getting you know, credit monitoring. Uh, that just means that if there's something weird in your credit reports, you are notified of it. So it doesn't really protect people all that much. Then the other problem with notification is that legislatures stop at it. They think, okay, the solution to data breach is notification. That is a reactive approach that ultimately does nothing to actually stop data breaches. It does nothing to prevent data breaches. It just means that people are going to be given more notices. It means that companies have to spend more money in the event of a data breach uh, but it doesn't really provide more protection or really change the equation when it comes to stemming the tide of of data breaches. And so, in, in a lot of ways, you know, the breach notification it, it's done what it really needs to do, which is shed the light. But but it doesn't do much more than that. Uh, but unfortunately, it's used as one of the primary tools to deal with with breaches. But th- that's not really going to solve the problem. That's just going to tell us that there is a problem. Um, so that's, I think, one of the unfortunate things about breach notification is that it, it it becomes so subsuming and it becomes the obsession of the law that it it's led to not that much else being done. And I think it's, it's a really unfortunate development with it. I wouldn't say that we should roll back uh, and get rid of breach notification, uh, but I think it should play a much lesser role. I think that that notification you know, need not be as you know, extensive as it is right now. And I think it would uh, be good to try to find ways to carry out notification that is less expensive uh, so that it doesn't consume you know, valuable resources from what could actually be used to you know, better prevent breaches. So, Woody, security safeguard laws, uh, what are they? Do they work well? What are some of their weaknesses? 
Sure. So security safeguard laws uh, have been popping up in various forms, both in federal and state law, specifically requiring things like administrative and technical and physical safeguards. We see rules, for example, in the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act or the Federal Trade Commission's entire approach to unfair data security practices often uh, points to the lack of security safeguards as an unfair trade practice. And there are all sorts of uh, various different kinds of ways in which uh, the law imposes responsibility on companies to plan ahead of time by creating these safeguards that are sometimes logistical in nature, like appointing a you know, chief security officer or someone, or sometimes technical in nature, like, for example, encrypting information or segmenting servers, separating servers out, or, or physical in nature, sometimes literally as simple as putting a lock on a file drawer, like on a file cabinet. And they are uh, necessary components of data security, but the problem is that they are not sufficient. Uh, and so there are some limitations. I, I don't want to say inherent drawbacks to security safeguards, but there are some limitations in relying upon security safeguards to do too much for us. Uh, and there are a few different ways in which that I think these, these laws are really limited. The first is that we have a, a, a really difficult tension in these rules between unhelpful vagueness and mechanical rigidity. So sometimes security safeguard rules get posed at the level uh, of complete abstraction. Dan and I once wrote an article called The uh, Complete and uh, Unifying Approach to Complying with All Laws and Regulations in the Whole World. And we sort of said we did extensive study and it turns out there's one simple rule that will help you comply with everything. And then the article itself was two words, be reasonable. Uh, and that's what security safeguard rules sometimes are phrased as, which is that companies that are collecting and storing personal information should impose reasonable safeguards uh, to protect the personal information from unauthorized third-party disclosure and access. That is a good standard in the sense that it does not, it, it's not a sort of ham-fisted, highly uh, rigid and flexible uh, approach to the government telling companies exactly what they should be doing. And the reason why this is important is because, of course, you want some sort of proportionality uh, and context sensitivity within these safeguards because you would not expect Tom's Pizza to undergo the same sort of security safeguards and planning and organization uh, as, say, Microsoft, right? That there are, those are two completely different actors with co two completely different risk profiles. And we know from lots of guidance that, that risk varies according to how much information you're collecting and the kind of information that you're collecting and the resources that you have as a company as to what's reasonable. And so that's good. But the downside to the, this vagueness is that it can be, A, incredibly unhelpful because companies often might want to know, have some sort of guidance as to what they should implement, or B, it allows, even worse, allows companies to engage in uh, a sort of minimal kind of protection and then, you know, make the claim, well, who's to say that I'm wrong, right? That that's you know, this is reasonable for me, for my circumstances. But then on the other side, you also want to be careful 
uh, to avoid a kind of mechanical rigidity. There are certain kinds of security safeguard laws that are actually highly specific and create a step-by-step approach, which is, you know, you should offer very complex password protocols that demand things like a special character and a number uh, and a capital letter, right? And when you get into something that highly specific, then you take away the necessary flexibility while you gain the benefit of having a much clearer compliance rule you risk defaulting into a sort of check the box mentality where companies are then able to provide a technical formulaic compliance without actually meaningfully protecting the information because they're just sort of checking the box, right? It's just tick the box and let's move on to the next thing. And so that's one of the problems. And then, and then a couple of other problems that we have with security safeguards rules or asking too much of security safeguards rules is that A, they're being under-enforced. It's very difficult to really robustly enforce a lot of these safeguard rules. And lots of companies simply just don't follow them. And one of the reasons why is because it can be difficult to prove compliance if you move beyond the very specific requirements and you just go to a a more flexible reasonableness approach. And the other reason is that even if you were to turn the enforcement dial up to 10, uh, one of the themes of the book that we try to draw out is that that there's only so much that that's going to get you because you're almost always only focusing on the breached entity that got breached after the fact. So in other words, security safeguard rules often get enforced in a backwards looking kind of way where a company gets hacked, the enforcement authority goes in and says, oh, it looks like you were storing passwords in clear text or not encrypting data properly or whatever it was and then enforces a provision, but this is harmful for two reasons. One of which is that, of course, the breach has already occurred, so it's uh, it's not prospective. And two, sometimes companies can act, in fact, quite reasonably and still get hacked. At a certain point, we need to build risk into the system. And at another point, we might want to look beyond simply the breached entity to see whether there were was any other on a too risky or, or dangerous conduct that led to this breach. Yeah, I'd like to add that I think one of the problems that you sometimes see with safeguards laws is that you know, a lot of these safeguards aren't necessarily a, a good fit for the particular context, yet companies feel or, or organizations generally feel that they need to do that because if they're looked at by the regulator and they haven't done everything on the list, then they're going to get dinged if they have a breach. Uh, so they uh, often w- will do things that are, are not necessarily the best things to do. And one of the problems with generally, uh, I think, uh, a way that folks think about data security in, in the wrong way is that you know, if you ask someone, oh, what, what, what's the goal? And someone might say, oh, well, it's to stop all breaches. You know, we really, we, we don't want data breaches. And, you know, at first glance, it seems intuitively like that should be the case, right? You know, who wants data breaches? But the problem is that that actually isn't the right goal because preventing all data breaches is impossible. And there are trade-offs as you start adopting different measures to promote security. Security is really about risk management, and there needs to be some risk. If you truly want to get rid of all risk, then 
Don't use the internet. Don't use computers. But we need to do these things. We need to have access to data. We need to be able to use data easily and quickly. And when you have these things, they come into conflict with what could be ideal for security. And so it's a balance uh, and it takes a judgment call. I think the problem is that if if you're always worried that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, and then you're going to get punished for that, then you might adopt and do certain things that aren't necessarily the best balance. However, there are a lot of times where companies and organizations will not come up with a good balance. They'll overbalance on the side of convenience and not enough on security. They'll make bad choices. So ideally, the law could steer companies to make a good set of balances for the risk that they're dealing with. But that's a complicated thing. And it's very complicated when a lot of people just go and look at a checklist to just knock off various things and are afraid that if they're ever looked at uh, and they didn't do something exactly on that list, they're going to look bad. So that's I think a problem with 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 some of these laws. Now, not all laws are, are bad in this way. So, I, I think an example of a of a good law is HIPAA. Uh, HIPAA basically gives flexibility for how certain types of measures are are implemented. So, it it will say that certain standards are not optional, but that they can be substituted for an alternative measure that could achieve the same goal so that you don't have to do exactly what it requires uh, in, in certain ones. They're called addressable standards. You can achieve the same goal in a different way if you can justify that. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of organizations will look at the uh, look at that and say, oh, that's optional. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's optional. It means that you still have to achieve the goal, but you just can do it in a, a different manner. What's good about HIPAA is it, it tries to achieve this balance between flexibility on the one hand, and but but some structure on, on the other. So it doesn't just say be reasonable like uh, you know some of the the, the other laws, which uh, almost doesn't give enough, really doesn't give enough guidance at all, but. At the same time, doesn't you know get into the mechanical nature that that some of the other laws do? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. So, Woody, the third area that you identify as, you know, impacting data security is private litigation. 
so how how do, is private litigation supposed to serve consumer interests and is it making any meaningful difference for data security that's a great question so i think that in theory private litigation would do at least two things the first thing it would do is act as a deterrence for uh, companies to avoid engaging in dangerous practices that could cause, uh, lead to a breach to individuals. The second thing that it could do is help individuals become whole again once their information has been breached. Um, I'm going to defer to Dan to talk about some of the ways in which private litigation has uh, failed to recognize the harms that happen to people in the event of a breach uh, because he we our book draws upon some of the excellent work that Dan did with Danielle Citrin regarding uh, risk and anxiety and other kinds of, of data security harms. But before I do that, I, I want to talk for a second about the fact that uh, private litigation right now is also struggling to find a way to make consumers whole again in the absence of a breach. Part of this has to do with the difficulty in valuating what was lost in the first place. And so uh, when someone's credit card information, for example, is compromised, sometimes there's a relatively direct line to things like fraudulent charges or uh, other kinds of harms from things like identity theft, where people have caused a, a concrete and articulable kind of harm. But of course, when lots of our personal information is compromised, sometimes the fallouts can be much more difficult to uh, make whole again. So if our personal information is revealed on the black market, maybe uh, people's photos or the fact that they had an account, for example, on Ashley Madison, which is an adultery facilitation website, created all sorts of, of more ephemeral harms that were difficult to pin down. And, and the only way that, that so far we've been able to meaningfully act as a deterrent for companies is often with class action litigation. That often results in very little being given to individual people in order to help make them whole. And so, so that piece is uh, has been difficult and perhaps not living up to the full promise of private litigation, even though it may be able to serve somewhat of a deterrent effect, I think there could be some additional improvements. And then I'll, I'll turn it over to Dan to talk about why some of these, uh, a lot of these lawsuits are in fact failing in courts for a lack of harm. So private litigation is um, a big chunk of, of data security law now. And every time there's a major breach, uh, the lawsuits start piling on, and you often have quite a number of lawsuits uh, in the event of a of a big breach. The lawsuits have some some problems. One is that uh, a lot of courts don't recognize harm. Harm is required for standing in federal court. Um, it's also part of the causes of action that are used to vindicate a a, a data breach, and Courts are very reluctant to find harm in these cases. Um, it started out particularly troublesome uh, where 
courts would just summarily say there's no harm or we don't recognize harm for any emotional distress arising out of a breach because we do not recognize purely emotional distress harms. These statements, these blanket statements are patently false. In fact, courts do recognize pure emotional distress harms, and they've done so for more than 100 years. The privacy tort cases all involve uh, a, a pure emotional distress harm, and it's not even an issue in these cases. It's not even fought or litigated. It is just taken for granted. Of course, those harms are recognized. It's not even fought over in court. It's such a uh, a given. So it really is is quite something when when courts don't really you know look at the law and make statements that are so ignorant of what the law is. That was a problem. That actually has improved. Uh, courts have over the years started to, uh, more and more courts are starting to recognize harm uh, in the event of a breach, but it's still very inconsistent uh, and it's still very slow. You have some headwind by the Supreme Court, which is uh, increasingly trying to use harm as a way to weed out lawsuits or block suits from federal court uh, through through standing. I, I think that um, the other way that 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 harm comes in is through not just emotional distress, but the increased risk of future economic or other injury. And courts are also really, really struggle dealing with the concept of risk. Now, outside of the courts, risk is a concept that businesses can grapple with pretty readily. This is, they do this every day. They can understand risk. They can quantify risk. They can take measures to mitigate risk or address risk, like getting insurance. Courts really freeze like a deer in headlights when they see risk. Uh, and so they often don't really see risk as creating harm. But you know, if you increase the risk dramatically, you, I think that is a harm because it, it it's going to involve certain different mitigative measures that you would probably be very wise to take to protect yourself. So bottom line is that we now have this really inconsistent jumble of law in the courts, and it really is a bit of a mess. And so I don't think it really sends a very clear message when it comes to data breach. The other problem is that it doesn't necessarily really help the consumer because the consumers really don't see a lot of of benefit when these suits are are won or, or and they, they all settle so they you know they'll settle and then the consumer gets a few cents or, or something very very minimal for when these suits settle so the lawyers come out ahead uh the companies pay a lot of money but it's not clear that we're really going to get better security out of all this so i think the lawsuits are important to at least acknowledge that you know Something bad has happened. Uh, there's a wrong here, and we should try to deter some of the the, the, the bad conduct uh, that that has happened. But it's not enough, uh, and it doesn't really help make victims whole. And it is so inconsistent that it really doesn't send a, a very clear message. And ultimately, it winds up costing a lot, but 
not really giving us what we really need for that expense, which is, you know, how are we going to try to prevent breaches? And when we have breaches, which are inevitable, how do we help mitigate the damage that they cause? Uh, and unfortunately, the litigation really doesn't doesn't achieve those goals. Woody, even as you and Dan give a very detailed explanation of the shortcomings and weaknesses of each of these types of data security laws or levers, when we think about why the law of data security fails, you seem to hit on one major overarching theme throughout the book. And that is that data security has an unhealthy obsession with the breach. You say that the more the law has obsessed over data breaches, the less effective it becomes at stopping them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So when we were doing research for this book, we started sort of trying to look at the big picture and see whether there was a unifying theme as to lots of different shortcomings in the various areas of the law that we've spoken about. And like you say, it, it became clear to us that we think that what the law has done is fixates on the breach. And, and by what we mean by that is not just the breach itself, but on the actor that suffered the breach that was holding the personal information. And so if you look at breach notification, it is the breached actor that has to send it out, right? So not only do we have a little bit of a myopia around who is responsible for data security when you focus too much on the breach and, and, and almost solely we are asking the company that is holding the personal information, right? Or, or sort of what I tell my privacy students, holding the harm hot potato, right? That, that, that they were the last in line holding this data and they're the ones that got hit with the breach. And then they're the ones that are going to have the inquiry about, uh, did you have the right safeguards and you have to send out the breach notification? And uh, then you, you're the one that can expect the private litigation against you. So we have, it, it causes the law to be a little myopic about the range of actors that can be held liable when you only focus on that last link in the chain of the breached entity, but also it forces a little bit of a reactionary posture that everything seems to rotate around the breach. And so breach notifications don't have to be sent until the breach occurs. And often the FTC doesn't act until there is a breach. And then you can look backwards to say, oh, I see there was a breach and, and that happened. So it, it forces us into a reactive stance rather than a proactive stance. And also the focus of private, private litigation being on harm really for, focuses on the breach, right? So when a third party gained access to your personal information, what was the harm is the question that often get asked. And what it forces us into is, like Dan described, this really narrow notion of harm. And so a narrow notion of harm, a narrow notion of when to act, and a narrow notion of who to act for are all byproducts of the law of sort of zeroing in on the breach itself. And we get it. The breach is what makes headlines. The breach is what is shocking. The breach is what 
when we see uh, what happened in the news, it causes us, it motivates us to action, to maybe check our accounts or, or other things. But we think that this fixation has resulted in an overly individualistic, an overly reactive, and an overly narrow conceptualization of data security, when instead what we should be doing is thinking more broadly, thinking more systemically, thinking of acting in a preventative way. And our thesis in the book is that the way in which we can achieve those things is by moving beyond the breached and the breached entity to look at more of the system as a whole, which will allow us to think more. We make a, an analogy to public health law, which doesn't try to eliminate all uh, viruses or all uh, infirm conditions, but rather, and certainly doesn't uh, look to the entity that got the virus, right? And says, you're the only thing, you know, our unit of analysis here, but rather looks at things systemically and preventatively to try to prevent an overall uh, health and sustainability of a system. And we think that data security law could benefit from a similar approach. And, and of course, we're not the only ones to come up with the, the public health law approach. There was some incredible work by Fred Schneider and, and Deirdre Mulligan, among others, who have uh, argued in favor of thinking of uh, cybersecurity more broadly in a, a public health approach. But this is what we mean when we say that the law of data security has an unhealthy fixation on the breach and the breached entity itself. So Dan, having identified that unhealthy fixation on the breach, as Woody notes, you all argue that the law must look beyond the breach. And, and one of the ways that you say it can do that is by more accurately allocating the costs of breaches to all the responsible actors in the data ecosystem. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Certainly. Um, so a breach is really, it, it, it's really a novel. A lot has happened and the law jumps in basically at the last chapter of the novel and responds to the organization, as, as Woody said, the organization that had the breach. But but that's just that's just the last chapter. Uh, before a, a breach, a lot of other actors have played roles in that breach. And these other actors, uh, the law gives a pass to. It doesn't really address those other actors. And that's a problem. We think that you know, the, the law really needs to start holding more folks accountable. Uh, and that doesn't mean that everyone should be given you know, equal liability, but it, it, we need to address these other actors and do something about them if we really want to have make a dent in this problem and, and be more preventative. Uh, and so some examples of the actors uh, that we identify are designers. Uh, these are the engineers that design software and various products. And a lot of them are designed uh, in ways that are terribly insecure. So, you know, makers of Internet of Things devices that lack good security, something needs to be done about that. The, the market doesn't control for this very well because, uh, a lot of people don't know enough about security to know what products to buy. And the security implications of bad devices, uh, insecure devices, often don't fall 
solely on the buyer of those devices. They affect everyone. So, you know, a hacker can take advantage of a lot of insecure video cameras, for example, to do a uh, a denial of service attack on other sites. So all those sites are going to suffer because people don't have secure devices and the uh, the market incentives for makers of the devices isn't to focus on security, it's to focus on price and other things. Uh, but the law needs to intervene here because the market really isn't providing good, secure devices. Um, software manufacturers need to uh, be held more accountable for what what they're doing. I, we're not proposing a, a strict liability standard for every time software is insecure, but there's a large range of how good various software is for security. And I think the law needs to make sure that the folks making really insecure software are held accountable. Other actors include distributors, uh, folks that distribute uh, security risks in the system, amplifiers, which are uh, actors that can uh, make risks more significant. Uh, And they do that by, you know, Often these are big data companies that collect massive amounts of data uh, that then become big targets for hackers. And so when the hackers break in, they get an enormous amount of data, which amplifies the the, the risks and harms that that, uh, are are caused by a data breach. We have facilitators. Uh, These are entities that actors that will create uh, vulnerabilities. So, you know, when you know, various proposals or attempts by the government to try to create backdoors, to thwart good encryption, to try to you know, encourage and essentially you know, you know pay bounty hunters to try to come up with ways to break into an iPhone, for example. Um, when they when they generate vulnerabilities and exploits, um, they are worsening security. And they get a pass. They do this, and and they're not really considering the the costs that they're imposing to society on weaker security. There are exploiters, uh, which are actors that exploit existing vulnerabilities. Uh, these are actors that that know about a particular problem, but don't do anything to report it. Uh, an example is WannaCry. That uh, vulnerability was known to the government and the government, you know, took advantage of that rather than trying to help get it fixed. Uh, and I think that that's uh, that was a really poor choice. And they're also miseducators. Uh, these are actors that uh, will do things that teach people how to be more vulnerable to hackers. You know, we we try. I mean, I'm I'm in the education. Uh, business in, in several ways. I'm a professor, but I also have a training company and I provide uh, training on good practices for data security and privacy. It's really hard to educate people when um, on good practices when there are a lot of entities that are educating people to be more vulnerable to hackers. And so if we want, if we tell people, you know, look, a good practice is don't click on links and emails to reset your password, go directly to the website. That's generally very good security advice. But then companies will send emails with 
links to do that very thing, reset the password. That is bad. They are they are they are doing a a kind of social disservice. They are teaching people that yes, a legitimate company will do this type of practice that we all know you shouldn't do. So all the good education is being ruined by companies that are encouraging people to engage in the very kinds of 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 gullible practices that hackers then can can misuse. So I think they should be held to account. They are creating a harm uh, and they are systematically teaching people to be more vulnerable uh, and to do things that will further this. So all these players are people who generally get a pass and we think they shouldn't get a pass. They should be held accountable and uh, they contribute to making breaches more likely, making uh, things more vulnerable. And if we start to address these actors, uh, which come into the novel much, much earlier than the breached entity at the very end, if we deal with these earlier, I think we can make some headway on reducing breaches. So Woody, to close this out, I would note that you and Dan in the essentially the second half of your book provide a lot of ideas to lawmakers and policymakers about how to get beyond the obsession of the breach. Dan was talking about a number of, of those ideas. One that, that struck me that I, I think relates to what he just said is that, you know, policymakers are not thinking about security measures with humans in mind. Dan gave some examples of that. So Woody, what are sort of the top things that you would have lawmakers think about as they're trying to address the data breach problem? Thank you for that question. I think that there are at least four things that Dan and I try to recommend generally in the, in the last half of the book that lawmakers could do to improve our approach to data security And they are spreading out responsibility across the broader range of actors that create vulnerabilities. And and Dan just finished talking about that one. So that's part of it. Um, And then part of what we would do, I think, is recommend to lawmakers that they reduce the harm of inevitable data breaches. So there's been a a fair amount of really good uh, data security and cybersecurity scholarship including uh, that from from Andrew Matushin and and Derek Bambauer and a few others that have said that data breaches are inevitable and we've got to figure out a way to make them less painful rather than trying to prevent them entirely. Um, And so we make a few recommendations in the book about ways to create rules that will minimize the impact of the data breach once it has happened so that perhaps it's it's a cut and not a, a, a chop right, or, or something significantly more painful. And, and we talk about ways to do that, including uh, creating systems that uh, don't jeopardize people as much. We spend a little bit of time in the book talking about how uh, the, the worst password ever created was the social security number. And the reason why is because it's used as authentication purposes all the time. But if it's compromised, it's actually very difficult to change. Um, and it's not like passwords, at least that have the virtue of being easy to generate and, and easily replaceable. 
And so that's something that we could do to, to lessen the cost of data breaches beforehand, uh, is create better systems that don't jeopardize us as much, even though ostensibly they, they are security enforcing. And also to focus on actors for things like easy grants of credit, right? Like one of the reasons that data breaches can be so dangerous is not necessarily because the information by itself is harmful if exposed, but rather the information can be used in ways that jeopardize people greatly. And so one of the approaches that we recommend is figure out ways to reduce the dangerous uses of personal information, even if it's exposed to people. And a great example would be to make it more difficult to uh, easily obtain credit in the name of someone, which is one of the, the common ways in which identity theft harms people. In the book, we also recommend unifying privacy and data security more than it has been. So particularly within organizations, privacy is housed often in compliance and legal and regulatory matters, whereas data security is often housed in IT and in a lot of the uh, more technical aspects. And essentially, we would like to encourage both in law and in industry for privacy and data security to be unified a little more because good privacy is good data security. Really good data minimization rules, if we made this a data security issue much more prominently, much more front and center, then we would have uh, significantly less fallout when the breach occurred because less information would be being stored in the first place or there would be fewer front doors to access as well as, as back doors, which ultimately what we're trying to avoid here is unauthorized disclosure of information. And then finally, uh, as you noted, Stephanie, we recommend designing rules with humans in mind. And what we mean by that is that so many of our data security rules now act as though humans have infinite amount of time and resources and cognitive abilities and will remember the 400 different passwords that they're asked to remember on a daily basis and will never ignore the warning sign that comes up that says, don't click on this link, or perhaps there's a, uh, you know, one of a thousand notifications about some suspicious activity in a network that often ends up getting overlooked because people are fallible. We have limited resources. We have limited cognitive abilities. And our rules need to take that into account because if you create rules that are built for perfect individuals with perfect recall, individuals or people are going to just create workarounds. They're going to write the password on a sticky note and place it on the monitor, right? Because they're being asked to do far too much. And we think that if lawmakers were to adopt all of these approaches, then we would, in fact, have a significantly better collective health of our information networks and people would be safer um, and we would have a, a, a much more sustainable relationship with companies that collect and store our personal information. Dan Soloff, Woody Hartsog. Thank you for joining me to talk about a path towards a more holistic approach to data security. Listeners can read more about it in your new book, Breached. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us here. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. 
You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.